Hello and welcome. My name is John August. My name is Craig Mason. And this is episode 626 of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Today on the show, what do you do when reality is distracting? As writers, we aim for accuracy and specificity, which generally helps stories feel authentic. But those very qualities can sometimes paradoxically pull viewers out of the story while trying to find the middle ground. Hmm. We'll also answer some listener questions about writing during production, period details, and whether or not to read the script before watching the movie. Oh, well, there's an answer to that one. Yeah. Give us a spoiler. What's your answer? No. I, th- I think you often should. So we'll discuss and debate before this. Before you watch the movie? Yeah. I think as a person who wants to learn about writing the craft. Oh, that. That. Oh, I thought you meant just as a person oh. that was watching a movie, you know, the way we would hope that they would watch it <laughs> without knowing what's happening. Yeah. 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 Right. Oh, we'll, we'll dig into that. Okay. And in our bonus segment for premium members, how can you tell when someone is just being nice? We'll discuss techniques for differentiating actual interest when it comes to scripts and in real life. Huh. Well, give away all my secrets. Yeah. The show is about revealing Craig Mason's secrets. That's really what it's all. Not to get new secrets. That's another uh, secrets. Oh, we have some follow-up. Drew, help us out with some follow-up. Robert writes, I thought this might be of interest to John. The first baby born in Ireland in 2024 was named Arlo. Well, is that a fairly popular name in Ireland? It is not a very popular name in Ireland or even here. So uh, my book series, Arlo Finch, I picked the name Arlo Finch in 2016. And back then it wasn't even in the top 500 names in the U.S., but it has grown quite a lot. So it's now around 150 in the U.S. Mm. So uh, so uh, it's nice. It's nice to see Arlo catching on. Yeah. The only Arlo I've ever heard of prior to your books was Arlo Guthrie. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think I have a pretty good handle on like picking names before they become popular because um, in my TV series, DC, the brother and sister characters were Mason and Finley. And those were like not in the top thousands of, li- of mm. names. And they've, they're now common names. Finley. 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 Yeah. Can we have a boy's name or a girl's name? Mason. I know there's been a billion Masons. When I play um, MLB The Show. Mm-hmm. MLB The Show is, is a basketball game for PlayStation. MLB The Show is a baseball. <laughs> Major League yes. Baseball. I'm supposed to say the NBA. Yeah. Which is basketball. So uh, you were close. I was close. I was a sports game. You were sport. It was a sports game. <laughs> mm-hmm. So <laughs> I wish you could, could see John's face. Well, like, <laughs> the, the show could have been a rap battle. So no, you're, you're playing a rap battle. Right. You're yeah. absolutely right. So MLB The Show, which is a uh, baseball mm-hmm. video game, mm-hmm. they have this thing where you can customize, you, you build a player, yeah. and then you can customize their name, and they have like a billion first names and also a billion last names. But of course, they don't have Mason. Nobody ever has no. Mason. But they do have Mason, hmm. which is close That's enough. Close, so, yeah. like, I can make a character named Craig Mason, and it's almost, uh, with the exception, also, I guess the name is slightly different. And also, my baseball player can play baseball very well, mm. and I cannot. Yeah, small differences. Yeah, those are the only differences. Yeah, but it, you know, the simulation is, is almost yeah. completely uh, appropriate. Dude, is huge. Speaking of names that are similar to your own names, you cast somebody in The Last of Us, and their last name yeah. was so similar to yours. Well, who is this? So we announced all sorts of casting this week. We announced uh, Caitlin Deaver, who's mm-hmm. going to be playing Abby. We announced Isabella Merced, who is playing Dina. And we announced Young Mazzino, who is playing Jesse. Mm-hmm. So Young Mazzino is, for those of you who've seen Beef, he plays the younger brother that Stephen, of Stephen Young's character. Yeah. And the first time I met Young, I said, you, you've stolen my rap name. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. that was it. Like, I was going to be Young Mazzino. And, and, and he, now you can't be. He took it. Yeah. By being named Young Zeno. <laughs> um, I'm still sort of puzzled over it. Yeah, I mean, 
I guess there may be some variations you could go because sometimes there'll be like a URL that we really want and we can't get that URL. And so mm. we, we go for something that's sort of close to it or something. But Right. But yeah. that was, there was only one name I was ever going to be. I'm out of the rap game now. Yeah. I can't drop my next cut. Yeah. For MLB <laughs> The Show, which is a, an amazing rap battle simulator and everyone loves it. I mean, it's just, it's really popular. I like that you're just like, I'm going to wing it here. Basketball. Basketball. I'm screwing. I, 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 I made a guess and I, I just stuck with it. <laughs> that was great. Uh, more follow-up from Iceland now. Oh. Root in Iceland writes, uh, it made me a tiny bit sad to hear that Craig is certain he would never be able to pronounce Icelandic words properly hmm. because I'm sure he can, both of you. Hmm. Being Icelandic myself, and given the topic on lab meat in the episode, I thought of the Icelandic word for a cannibal, which is manita. 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 Icelandic is a very literal language, and manita literally means an eater of man, or a man-eater-ish. The thing is, all those weird noises, it's a trick. Act like you're always freezing a bit due to the harsh weather in Iceland, and like you're always a tiny bit in a hurry because you're running away from the volcanoes. So try saying Manita, like you're freezing and in a bit of a hurry. You never know if you'll end up in Iceland in some meat lab in the future trying to opt out of the human experience. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. Here we go. Manita. Yeah, a little bit. Cool. It also had a little bit of like a, like a Japanese, like a, a little Japanese quality oh. to it. That was just, uh, Manita. One of the things in the, uh, the dialect uh, lessons I've been doing about IPA, it's a helpful thing with dialects is by where they're putting the uh sound, the resting uh sound in the mouth. Is it how, how far forward is it and how far back it is? And so that's an easy way to sort of get you closer to where the vowels are and where, the, where the accent would fall. So, ah, uh, as opposed to, ah. Uh. Yeah. And so, like, our American English is that our, uh, is sort of here. Yeah. But in British English, it moves a little bit further. Like, uh, or, uh, oh, uh, 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 uh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 Drew had to do a bunch of that in, in acting school, I'm sure. You did a bunch of just pronouncing the word, yeah. 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 We have more amazing follow-up here. Oh. Uh, this is going back to the Christmas episode about our favorite childhood gifts. That's right, because you had mentioned that you got the Mazinga toy. I knew this was going to, somebody was going to write in about yeah, the Mazinga we had a few toy. People. Okay, here we go. So Lamar writes, I'm basically the same age as Craig, and those giant toys were also my favorite childhood gifts. I remember there being seven of them. Whoa. Five robots I stared at longingly in the Sears catalog as they stood side by side in a classic hero shot, and then two kaijus, Godzilla and Rodan. I remember Mazinga being marketed as the one to have. And as Craig was describing him, I was thinking, Mazinga, Mazinga, even before he said the name. <laughs> and then Richard in Boston wrote in to say the origins of Mazinga are in a 1972 manga and 1973 anime called Mazinger Z, with the design of the helmet thus, in fact, predating Darth Vader by a few years. Oh. So Shogun Warriors was Mattel's American release of an assortment of different anime-related characters, including Mazinger Z. It was trying to ride on the wave of popularity of other Japanese giant robot properties that got rebranded and released for the American market, such as Transformers and Voltron. I am so glad that nobody wrote in, mm. like, in the comic book guy persona, like, actually, mm -hmm. it's pronounced Mazinga, and you were incorrect. They were yeah. not, you know, so I at least had that little bit right. It's, I did not know that there were, so there were five of them and then two monsters. Yeah. I only thought there were three. I was lied to. You were lied to, or maybe you didn't get the full Wish Book catalog to, to see what yeah. those options were for you. Sears catalog. So a catalog. Mm -hmm. So Sears. Which catalogs did you have? So we had Sears, Montgomery Wards, and JCPenney's were the ones I remember. I don't recall us getting any catalogs. Mm -hmm. Our family apparently was not catalog worthy. All right. We never ordered anything. So Sears, we would go to Sears. 
where my mom would buy that, you know, that horrible, the horrible winter coat. You know, the horrible winter coat. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. yeah. Orange on the inside, blue on the outside, fake fur. Yeah. I have a cranberry colored one of those that I, oh. I see in some photos and I, I look at it long and like, those are fashion now. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. There's probably like some good vintage ones out there from the seventies. Yeah. But vintage is all being scooped up by people like my daughter who just, you know, only thrifts. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of thrifting amongst the children. Yeah, they really are. It's ironic to them. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Look, idiots wore this. LOL. Yeah. Yeah. But now you're wearing it. So who's the idiot now? Yeah. Also, we probably had lice in that thing. Mm-hmm. So LOL. No, we, <laughs> we did wear it. We also got rid of it. And now you're picking it up. Exactly. Yeah. Stupids. Stupids. Our main topic this week, I've been watching a lot of screeners, going to see movies, but also seeing some screeners. And this past week, I watched Maestro, which I really liked. It tells the story of Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia. But I don't know if you've seen it yet. But I have. I, I could not help but be, I was so distracted by the kazoos. Um, because this is a, yes, it's a period film about a musician. But man, there were so many kazoos in this movie. And Where is this going? <laughs> well, listen, for folks who haven't seen the movie, like I thought I'd play a clip. So this is a clip yeah. from Maestro. Um, and so this scene we're about to hear is Carrie Mulligan and Sarah Silverman, who's great in the movie. I yes. love seeing Sarah Silverman in a serious role. They're just having a conversation, but even in an audio medium, I think you can figure out like why I found this distracting. Seems I'm attracted to a certain type. Listen, mm. you know, Lenny loves you. He really does. He's just a man, <laughs> a horribly aging man who cannot just be wholly one thing. He's, he's uh, lost. I've always known who he is. He called me, you know. What and is this? He wants us all to go to Fairfield together for two weeks. He sounded different. Felicia. No, I, I... Let's not make excuses. He didn't fail me. Felicia. No, it's... It's my own arrogance. To think I could survive on what he could do. What is this? <laughs> so, okay, there weren't literal kazoos, but what was pulling me out is they smoke in every scene in this movie. Yes. And it pulled me out of some scenes in this. And so Interesting. The, the kazoos are moments in which the cigarettes are appearing in, in the frame. Uh, okay, I see what you're doing. You're making a point. I'm making a small little point I here. I see your point. Yes. It's true. I, uh, Melissa and I watched it together, and when it was over and we were discussing it, she said, oh my God, they were smoking so much. And I was like... I haven't seen that many people smoking since Chernobyl, <laughs> in which everyone was smoking. And so there are moments in which it's acknowledged, where she's like, oh, you have some ash on you. She's pulling the ash off. But there yes. are, the cigarettes are so close to each other's faces through a lot of it. It was just, it's a deliberate choice. I, I you know, probably could make the choices he wants to make. But for me as a modern audience watching that film, I'm like, they're just smoking all the time. Well, it is part of the the period charm, mm-hmm. I guess. Leonard Bernstein did die of a smoking-related cancer. I think it, it was doesn't, yeah. esophageal or something like that. And he had um, emphysema. And his wife, as depicted in the movie, died fairly young from breast cancer, mm-hmm. which uh, oftentimes correlates to smoking. So it was thematic. What I remembered when I was watching it, because when I do see people smoking in a movie, a lot of times it, it does, I note it. Yeah. But it reminded me of how much smoking was going on around me. As yeah. a kid, my parents and my grandparents who lived with us all smoked all the time mm-hmm. inside. Yeah. So that's kind of actually correct. And that's sort of why I want to get into this topic, because it is correct. It is accurate, but it's also distracting. And so 
sometimes as writers and as filmmakers, we're making choices that are the accurate choice, um, yet to an audience looking at it, it, it may pull away from story that you want them to pay attention to because that accuracy kind of gets in the way of people being able to relate to what's actually happening here. So smoking is one of those things. And we'll spend a few minutes on smoking because I think the reason why smoking seems so weird to us now is that we actually, as an industry, made choices about sort of not showing smoking. Yes. And people stopped smoking so much. We stopped, we banned smoking indoors. Um, the number of people who smoked has just dropped tremendously in the United States and Europe. So it's like, we're just not seeing smoking so much in real life. And, and also we deliberately don't see stuff on in films and television because we made choices not to portray it. Right. I don't know if we can necessarily say there's a correlation between our mm. artistic restraint and, and what's going on out there. You know, obviously during the time that Maestro takes place, World War, so the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we were just catching up to the health impacts of smoking yeah. kind of in the 70s and 80s. And the 80s was when it really started to take off and and there was the National Smoke Out Day and all the rest of yeah, it. Absolutely. So 1970 was the uh, Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, which banned advertising for cigarettes. And well, it banned up. advertising for cigarettes, I think, on television. On television, yes. And then eventually... But they were in every magazine. Of course. And, and at sporting events mm-hmm. and billboards. Yeah. And then it was 2007, which is pretty recently, that the MPAA said um, studios should eliminate smoking from all youth-rated films. And then the sort of, you know, Netflix said it was going like, to not have any cigarette smoking in anything aimed for TV 14 or younger. I believe Universal mm-hmm. has a thing where they just won't show smoking at all, yeah. I think. Or maybe if it's rated R, they let you do it. But otherwise, like any movie that's not rated R, they don't do cigarettes, I yeah. believe. Yeah. And that's, you know. Yeah, I, I get that. And so, you know, a weird thing that's happened is you said that, you know, oh, it reminds you of like, oh, back then people used to smoke cigarettes. And also when I see cigarettes being smoked on screen, I assume like, oh, that must be period. It just, it, it automatically sort of evokes period because like, that's not right now. And watching Saltburn is interesting because it's the UK and I'm, I'm not quite sure what year we were in, but there's smoking in it. And it's only sort of at the end, you realize like, oh, that was actually 2006 because we jumped forward to present day. And so like right. smoking was appropriate for when it was there. Yeah. And I guess post-apocalyptic things are sort of a period, yeah, like a future-looking yeah. period. So, you know, we made a choice in, in The Last of Us to show people, some people smoking. It's not a lot mm-hmm. because it's just harder to, you yeah. know, they're all kind of home-spun, home-rolled cigarettes, and they're probably not very good. But they're still there. They're still kind of currency, yeah. you know, the way that they are in prison and things like that. But Chernobyl was crazy. I mean, they were constantly... Mm-hmm. Yeah, as part of it, I guess it's an interesting thing. If you show, okay, so Bradley Cooper makes Maestro and he has to make a choice. Yeah. I don't know how you make a biopic or as many people would say a biopic <laughs> about Leonard Bernstein without showing constant cigarettes. I mean, he was sort of infamous for mm-hmm. having a cigarette in his hand all the time. Now, the fact that everybody else is constantly smoking, I suppose, is part of the choice. Yeah. I didn't notice it after a while. It just mm-hmm. sort of became part of it. Go back to Chernobyl. The cigarettes that are smoked in Chernobyl, how many of them are on the page versus in the actual staging of them? You're like, oh, this character would be smoking in the scene. I believe they were all on the page. Yeah. I, I call it out specifically. And it's if you don't, the problem is you start getting into a lot of um, production meeting questions. Mm-hmm. Are they smoking? Where are they smoking? Is there an ashtray? Da, da, da. They're both. There's a lighter. And then the prop people are like, which cigarettes? This or this or this. Or this. So... I do specify it. I certainly specify it in The Last of Us and I specified it in Chernobyl. So I made a choice that in Chernobyl, for instance, Komuk would not smoke. Mm. Lagasa would smoke a lot. So not everybody smokes 
but some people definitely do. Yeah. Uh, related to smoking, drug use in films. So when I see a film that has, you know, characters using cocaine, I don't know how much cocaine that is. I don't know how to even sort of process that sometimes. And so there's characters who like would be using a drug and it was either historically accurate or it would be accurate to the period or accurate to the, the kind of movie it is. And that it can be distracting if I'm thinking about that drug use and not understanding what that is in the context of the film. Yes, drug use on camera has always had these extremes, right? People that are snorting stuff on camera are either immediately overdosing and dying mm -hmm. or just wild and crazy. And my guess is it's probably somewhere in the middle. Actually, there's a moment with cocaine in Maestro. Mm -hmm. And I noticed something really interesting about it. So Leonard Bernstein and a few other guys are snorting coke. Mm -hmm. So I've never used cocaine. I don't know. But here's my impression of everybody in every movie ever snorting yeah. coke. You ready? <laughs> it's like the super fast, yeah. super aggressive. These guys were like, like just the nice casual. And, and to me, I was like, I bet that's how it really works. Yeah, yeah. So my stereotypical, like doing a line of cocaine in a movie is you do it fast and then you come and tip your head back. And sort of shake like once or twice. Yeah. Just because you're feeling that rush. Yeah. Uh, and notably, I think one of the interesting things about the cocaine scene in Maestro is that uh, Bradley Cooper does a line and then he holds up the tray to this other guy. Like he's trying to pass it off, but then the guy just like does a line right. on it. And so then he does it to the next guy over. And so it's just like, I guess I'm just the person who holds up the tray now. It, it ended up having a little yeah. character moment, which was, was nice. I thought it was cool. And it did seem more realistic. I, it seemed. I don't know for sure. Yeah. Thinking back to, you know, if there's drugs being portrayed in a movie, either it's a cautionary tale, like this is going to end badly, or that the person's wild and crazy. One thing that I enjoyed about Fire Island, when we had Joel Kim Booster on to talk about Fire Island, is like there's drug use in the movie and it's not a crisis. It's not like the world is going to end because those characters are using drugs. Which is hard for people. Yeah. Because n nobody necessarily wants to put out a message that drugs are fine, but here's a difficult, weird fact. Most people who are recreationally using drugs, mm -hmm. I'll leave injectables out of this, yeah. don't die of an overdose and just are functional. Yeah, There's a lot of functional recreational drug users out there and alcohol is one of them. Yeah. Right? So there are a lot of functional alcoholics. There are a lot of people that aren't alcoholics. They just are able to recreationally use alcohol as a drug yeah. and then just be fine. That's not a very dramatic proposition, is it? It's not. No. no they did a thing and nothing happened. Right. Yeah. Bad story. Bad story. Not a substance you on screen, but the N-word in historical things. Um, mm. So you have characters, Drew, I think you're bringing up Meek's Cutoff. Meek's Cutoff, which is a Kelly Reichardt movie. You ever seen that? I have not. Yeah. So it's set in what period of time? 1800. It's, it's pioneer women kind of moving across the Great Plains in an Oregon Trail thing. And they use the N-word in a very casual way, in a very... Um, conversational way not directed towards a black character but just as like a as a reference term yeah yeah like it's the word oh, they were taught yeah. yeah yeah i'm slaving away over this uh cooking or something right. like that yeah. they would and it's it pulls you out of it yeah i could i could see that yeah. i mean we certainly have greater sensitivities to that there are obviously movies about race where i mean tarantino mm -hmm. is sort of infamous for this either movies about race like say django unchained or movies that have nothing to do whatsoever with race like pulp fiction but the idea is that this is just how people talk in the world, which is often true. It's not always true. Mm -hmm. But our sensitivities have increased dramatically. To me, it's a little bit like nudity. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. 
you can say it doesn't, it shouldn't be a thing. I always love it when filmmakers are like, why is it a thing that uh, the woman is a nude, it's a natural, it's just a human body. I'm like, oh, sh- you know why. Absolutely. You know, go ahead and take your dick out at a press conference and see how natural it is. It's mm. not. Yeah. Or leave the, the door open when you go to the bathroom. You don't, right? So like, I'm not saying that there should never be nudity on film, but we shouldn't act like it's not a thing. It is. We do notice it. It can distract and you have to be aware of that for sure. Yeah. So I think what we're leading up to is the fact that it is accurate that nudity exists or that they would use the N-word in that context doesn't mean that it's the right choice to use that in the film and television that you're doing because you have to recognize that it's going to be interpreted a certain way. That may not be the interpretation that you want. Even if it's interpreted exactly as mm-hmm. you want, it's still going to jolt people. Yeah. Violence used to do that. Yeah. And we became so saturated in it that now it sort of doesn't. It's a rare thing for vi- I remember as a kid being horrified by blood on screen. Yeah. My kids have never been horrified by blood on screen. Yeah. They just didn't care. They just sort of bought in that it was fake. But I remember being very, very scared of it. Yeah. Along the lines of it needing to be aware of how an audience is going to take a thing. Um, we said the N-word, but there's other words that just have shifted in meanings from when they were originally put out there. So when you say prejudice, like in Pride and Prejudice, that doesn't mean racial prejudice, but like prejudice now just means kind of racial prejudice. It's very hard to use that word without the secondary meaning discreet and discreet, like homonyms are, I think you have to just be really aware of how a person is likely to hear that word and whether it's, even if it was the, the word the person actually said in real life in that moment, it may not be the word to say on screen. Yeah, you're gauging your audience's knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what you're making. If you're making a movie for a family, for children, you probably don't want to use a word like discreet because they're not going to know either mm-hmm. version of it. For adults, sometimes it's interesting to hear people say words mm-hmm. that you don't know yeah. and have to go run back to the dictionary. I remember, was it sedulous? Was that a word that was used in The Matrix 2? All right. <laughs> Something like that. It was like, there was this, like a series of words that the architect delivered yes. that were like, what, wait, what? And the point was, this guy's incredibly smart and didn't even care that you didn't know. The, the only thing that bothered me about that was that Keanu Reeves didn't go, wait, wait. stop. <laughs> I don't know that word because <laughs> he definitely didn't because mm-hmm. nobody maybe, did. Maybe he had a program downloaded into him that actually gave him like a full dictionary. Oh, that's not, yeah, uh, tank. Yeah. I, need, I need the Oxford yeah. English Dictionary. Yeah. I know put what it, put it in there. means. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am looking forward to, like, I don't want the internet implanted into my head, but if I could have a little like thing that I could immediately know those kind of facts, mm. and I think that may happen during our lifetime, I would take that. Well, look who's reporting to Elon Musk's uh-huh. research center. <laughs> yes, uh, after it's been tested on many, many other people, uh, yeah. I will consider that. So this is, to some degree, outside of the writer's control, but I want us to talk about accurate but distracting accents, um, because that can be a, a big issue. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so like everyone who attempts an Italian accent will be raked over the coals for the Italian accent. Except for Mario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wait, actually, no, I didn't even think he tried to. Did I, I didn't see the Super Mario. Did, did Chris Pratt do a Mario accent or no? I think actually, in my opinion, it was actually a pretty successful version of, of what it is. It, 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 it felt like a lighter version of a Mario accent. Oh, okay. So a little bit. It's yeah. me. But then you look at like Lady Gaga and being raked over the coals for House of Gucci. I don't know what that, that character actually spoke. Maybe she really spoke exactly that way. It was bizarre to watch on screen. Accents are tough um, and they can be distracting and 
sometimes the best you can hope for is that people sort of buy in quickly and forget about it. That was the Chernobyl method, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. And the only thing you really want to try and avoid is demanding that your actors perform an accent that they can't do. Mm-hmm. That is the equivalent of bad hair. Yeah. It's always there. It's ruining everything all the time. And I mean, my wife is from uh, the Boston area and yeah. oh my God, anybody from Boston, it's like, and yes, it, it there have been 98% of portrayals of the Boston accent on film or television have been dreadful. Mm-hmm. If you're not looking at any of the Afflecks or Matt Damon, odds are it's going to be bad, right? Or a Wahlberg. Yeah. But most people actually don't specifically know how that accent works. Yeah. And so they kind of let it go. But there are accents we all know. And then there are accents where like, okay, I've never heard that accent before, but it just sounds wrong. Mm. It sounds comical or goofy. And you're stuck with it. It's one of those terrifying choices you make when you're making something and there's no way that you can't, what are you going to do, dub the whole movie? Mm. You can't. No. You're screwed. Yeah. I mean, so again, going back to realistic but distracting, like, an actor might come in with like, oh, you've actually nailed the accent for that exact real life person. And yet, if we put this in the movie, it is going to be so incredibly distracting that, you, that you're doing this thing and you may need to scale back from that. And that's, that's the choice you make. Or that yeah. you're doing this, this incredibly realistic accent. No one else in the rest of the movie is, is approaching that. And then you need to find some sort of common ground where you're all in the same film. Yes. That would be very bad. Yeah. I, have this um, strange fear response to thinking about these things because anytime you can do something and then go, you know what? Hmm. Good theory. Didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Let's switch it up. Wear this shirt instead. Stand over here instead. Say the line like this instead. Hold this in the other hand. But when you're dealing with accents and it's, you know, you're 20 days into production and someone rings you up and goes, I'm sorry, none of this sounds good. You're like, well, that's what we're doing. Yep. Can't change in the middle. The other thing about accents is they're a little bit like actor bait. Yeah. It's a trap for actors. They love them. Yeah. They love because they have some control. They can, st- finally, I can study and prepare and really get something that's exactly right. But the problem is now they're, I, they're, that's where their mind is. Mm-hmm. And it's not on the, the stuff that ultimately matters. Yes. Yeah, so are they conveying the emotional all. essence of, of, at this moment. Do, am I connecting with you? Do I believe you? Are you moving me? Yeah. And so it's a little, it's tricky. Yeah. Probably last big area for realistic but distracting would be kind of everything related to technology. And so there's how stuff would really works in the real world and like the speed at which like things could connect and how quickly we can track that thing down, which if we do it in movies may not feel real. It may not feel right. Feel accurate. A counter example, um, watching past lives, one of the things I really loved about it is uh, they're talking via Skype and suddenly I heard all the sounds of Skype. We used to record this podcast over Skype. Bum, 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 yeah. bum, 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 bum. And yeah. as you connect, those moments are delightful. It's great nostalgia. Um, but, but you want to pick those moments carefully because otherwise the audience may not know what you're doing and you may just be, you may be eating up screen time. It may not feel real. Yes. On the other hand, mm-hmm. there's the oversimplification of technology, which also makes us laugh and stinks. Like anytime somebody is hacking into anything, yeah. it's just wrong. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's just like, 
I mean, it's a, a graphical interface of a Pac-Man chewing its way through mm-hmm. firewalls. Like someone, whoever taught the first studio executive the term firewall uh, should get the opposite of the Nobel Prize. Yeah. We should have an anti-Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Boo. Yeah, the Ig Nobel Prize. The Ig Nobel Prize. It actually exists. I did it for some sort of like bad scientific discovery. Yeah, I like that. The Ig Nobel Prize. Ig Nobel Prize. Ig Nobel. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in the 80s, there was this rash of movies where people were always dealing with computer viruses or hacking, mm-hmm. except it was always portrayed as a graphical battle between like a laughing yeah. skull and a target. <laughs> and <laughs> I've yeah, got you now. Yeah. yeah. Like, what is happening? And we know that. Mm-hmm. We all know that now. And yes, definitely enhance, enlarge, track, trace. It's not. No, no, none of it. So some takeaways here. I, I think we're wanting to find a balance between what is fully accurate and realistic versus what is believable because they're not necessarily the same things. Right. And you have to err towards believability for the audience because if you lose believability in the audience, it, it doesn't matter that you were right. Yes. That has to be the first connection. Yes. And you have varying degrees of latitude depending on your tone. Mm-hmm. The broader your tone, the more latitude you have, the more grounded you are. You, you can get down to almost no latitude. Yeah. And you have to gauge that. You have to know basically depending on how accurate you are to anything in the world, Mm -hmm. that should spill over to these things as well. But I do think we need to be extra careful about the things you've listed. Yeah. Um, And also just be aware of distractions. Be aware of things that are pulling focus from what you actually want the audience to be focusing on. So, Craig, you're on set and you see background players moving Mm. uh, behind Mm. in the background. And like you will have to do another take because that background player, maybe it was realistic for them to cross the street that way, but it, it doesn't actually work for what you need. Yeah. Nine times out of 10 or maybe more, Mm -hmm. that distracting background performer is either eliminated in the edit anyway or no one ever notices. Yeah. So there are these compilations on YouTube of background actors doing dumb crap, Mm -hmm. except they're in the movie or the show. They're movies I have seen a million times and never noticed it. Yeah. People that are pretending to answer a phone but not picking up the phone. People who are doing the most bizarre stuff, and I've never noticed because no one's actually paying attention to the background people. But when I'm directing, yeah, and I see somebody in the background doing something dumb, yeah, I go again. Yeah, I go again. Well, back to you know, realistic but distracting. If two hairs are like walking towards camera, like on on a sidewalk, and there's other pedestrians around, they're going to have to move around other pedestrians. Like there's going to be crosses in there that that are just not going to be cinematic, and so like, yeah, just. Everything's optimized for the, their passageway to us. And hopefully, you know, if the scene's working, you're not going to notice that. But like there was a lot of choreography that happened behind the scenes to get that thing to look natural, even though it's not how things would really work. Right. I mean, the classic shot of um, you're pulling as two people are walking down a busy New York street talking. So you're you're leading them. Often the camera is on a dolly track and nobody can be behind the camera because nope. they're going to get run over. And so you have people moving mostly on one side kind of as yeah. opposed to the other side because that's where, you know, they probably have a little bit of an offset with the camera. and the So there are things that we just have to deal with and yeah. there's nothing we can do about it. And that's fine. I think everyone is incredibly forgiving of this. I have to remind myself as we head into production again not to get too caught up over the the silly extra. In, in the old days when our monitors were terrible, mm-hmm. We literally couldn't even see it that well. Yeah. And then you would cut the movie together and, and sometimes you, you still wouldn't be able to see it that well until like the very end because even your edit was like this low res thing. Yeah. yeah. 
You're not going to see it on the Moviola, but right. yeah, yeah. Then you'd get to the premiere and you'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. What is that back there? Nobody cared. Yeah. And the other thing you recognize when you're actually on set is that what the lens is and what is reality is, is not the same at all. And so that right. actors who it seemed like they're moving in a straight line are actually walking. They're, yes. they're taking a curve in order to get to a place that they're not behaving to the actual geography of the space itself, but it, the camera doesn't see it that well. Yeah. And that's part of the yeah. the dream of yeah. compressing time and space. We love it all. Yep. Some questions, Drew. Yeah. Uh, I have a question that's kind of related to what we were just talking about. Taylor S. writes, I'm working on a comedy drama pilot set in 2007 where some technology and trends of the time are important to the plot and themes. Almost immediately, the hilarious BoJack episode set in 2007 came to mind, where the entire joke is that they crammed as many random 2007 references in as possible. But my question is, how can I avoid doing the bad version of that while still being fun and entertaining without devolving into 22 minutes of, hey, remember this? This was not what I expected from Taylor Swift. Yeah, I mean, for her first question. <laughs> well, you know, she's, podcast. she's had highs, she's had lows, but I think, you know, this is a low. Yeah, this is a low. <laughs> this is a low. <laughs> yeah. She's writing into a screenplay podcast mm-hmm. to yeah, get a I, tip she's on She's working writing. on a movie. She's directing a movie now. So, um, so she, she wants to do it right. So apparently her movie yeah. set in 2007 or a pilot. She, I guess she's shooting a pilot in 2007. We got a scoop. We, we got, got a scoop. We got a scoop. It's um, a good question. It is a good question. Yeah. I think. Taylor, you are doing the right thing to like think of and list all the stuff that you can possibly know from that era, partly because you don't want to get anything wrong. You don't want to include anything that was that was too late for that. And then just be very judicious about sort of what actual things you're going to bring into the story. Because, yes, I mean, the Bojack Horseman episode is really funny because it is Make just over point. it's over crushed yeah. and that's it can get away with that. But you and your pilot probably can't. Yeah, they certainly wouldn't have done that in the pilot for Bojack Horseman, mm-hmm. for instance. Um Practical advice for you, Taylor, is feel free to put as much 2007 stuff you want in while it's in the background. Uh, while it's in the background, it's like background actors. There's color and there's light and movement, but our focus isn't there. When anyone is picking something up, when your key cast is interacting with something, if they're picking up a cell phone and all that, then we'll notice it. Yeah. So you don't have too many of those, but... One of the things that the Duffer Brothers did so well with Stranger Things is put it in the 80s, but just not 80s, 80s, 80s. All the, It was just things that were there yeah. that you, they didn't have to make a point of that were just sort of there. And they're also the other thing about period stuff that's really important is if you're making something that takes place in 2007, most of the items will be from 1995. Yes. Yeah. Or 1999. So we go through this all the time on our show with cars. Our, the world ends in 2003 in our show. And I'm like, most of the models are going to be from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Not everything should be from 2003, right? So that's the other thing. Back up from where you are because most stuff is not new. Yeah, 100%. There was a project I was considering doing that was set in the 10s based on a true story, set in the 10s. And it was actually really hard to think about sort of what were the 2010s like. I mean, just like, what are the highlight moments? Like, they don't feel that different from, you know, 2024 in most ways. And like, Mm -hmm. the phones couldn't do quite as many things, but like, people still had phones. Right. And so figuring out what that balance is, and also if I were to do this this project, how do you teach people what was different about then than now? Because there's some important different things there. Yeah. Well, what'll happen is craftspeople will get very excited Mm -hmm. about anything, any period piece that gets super excited. And they're like, this was the hot fashion at the time. Well, not everybody Mm -hmm. will be au courant. Most people will be, again, behind, but there's varying levels. So the other question is, 
which one of my characters would be interested in being new or yeah. fresh or modern and which one would sort of not change things and yeah. which one would be trying too hard. And so think about it that way. But more than anything, just don't make any of that stuff try too hard. I went to a screening of The Holdovers and the actress in the film, Divine Joy Randolph, was talking about how the art director and, and set decorators um, that movie would be so thorough that if she just opened a random drawer, like everything in there would be historically accurate. Yeah. And uh, that it was great for her. Like she felt like she really was just, when she was on set, she was completely in that time and place, which is fun. Yes. To the extent that you can do that, do it. Um, that's that's really advice more for, for filmmakers yeah. as opposed to writers who are not directing because they will not be picking those things yeah. or filling the drawers. But I, I love that stuff personally. I like filling the space in as much as possible for the actors. So obviously if you're calling out a shot of something in a drawer, you you oh, have yeah. to prepare it. But yeah, for the actors, give them as much as you can. Yeah. And Taylor, the last bit of advice I'd have for you is there may be reasons why you want at times to teach the audience about sort of 2007 or sort of like what was different, but like be really mindful that you're not creating a scene that's just to do that because that's never going to make it into your final thing. If it's not helping to tell the story, it's not going to stay in, in, in the script. Yeah. It may stay in the script, but it won't be in the movie. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion of the upcoming election yeah. next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder what will happen yeah. now that George W. Bush won't be president anymore because it's 2007, everyone. We just finished watching The Crown, so The Crown ended, and I loved The Crown, and that, that was obviously a show that went through a tremendous number of time periods. Yes but never felt obsessed about sort of like, this is the newest, latest thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they do have a TV at a certain point. They do have some things that come up along the way. They are eventually using cell phones, but it never felt like it was hitting you over the head with like, this is the year that we're in. Yeah, sometimes the lack of change mm-hmm. is indicative oh, yeah. of itself. The queen, I imagine, probably was very sort of set in mm-hmm. being the queen, and it's all about tradition and longevity and connection to the past. And so she wouldn't be running out to get the new top-loading VCR device <laughs> in 1977. So that makes sense. All right, another question. Greg writes, I'm trying to expand my film knowledge and watch more stuff, but also as a writer, I realize I should probably be reading scripts of movies as well. Do you have a suggested strategy for reading and watching the same movie? Should I read it first and then watch it, the reverse, or both at the same time? So uh, Greg is a listener, but he's also a friend. And so he was writing to me specifically for advice I'm putting on the podcast because I think it's good general advice. Yeah. So he's a writer who was wondering, like, oh, should I be reading these for your consideration scripts first or watching the movie? Mm. My advice to him was to do both and to sort of like sometimes watch them and read them afterwards, sometimes read them first and see sort of what the choices on the page, how they were reflected on the screen. Well, certainly if you have the opportunity to do both, you, that that can't hurt. If you have to choose, um, I would probably still choose to watch the movie first, then read the script. Why is that? Well, I think that it's easier for you to see what the writer was intending with the words Mm -hmm. because you've seen it and you can say, ah, I see how they painted this and that's what it became. Or sometimes you could see, oh, that's incredibly vague. And then a lot of this other stuff happened. So it's an interesting thing to connect the two things together. It's also more interesting to see what was deleted knowing it was deleted. It's marginally more instructive, but I agree with you. Going back and forth in both directions would probably be useful. Yeah. So there have been times where I've done this very rarely, but like watch the movie like while I have the script open and sort of see like what they're doing sort of scene by scene mm. um, as stuff is happening. And like you get a sense of what that, that play is back and forth. 
when you watch the movie first and then read the script, obviously the pictures you're seeing in your head are going to be the movie you just saw. Yes. And so you can see like, oh, do these words match that? But like the words, same description can be very minimal. And it's like, oh, well, that's still got us there, I guess. When you read the script first, you're having to build the whole movie in your in your head first. And then you watch the final movie and it's like, oh, that was what I was seeing. It wasn't what I was seeing. Did the script do a great job of building out this world for me? So I think that's useful. Yeah, I guess it depends on the movie and it depends yeah. on the writer and how thorough the screenplay is. And because there are writers that are much more, mm-hmm. I guess, minimalist. Yeah. Also, writers that are writing for themselves to direct sometimes are doing things in a way that, was it a Bigelow script we read that was like, was it near dark? Yeah. That was like super spare. Yeah. It's really cool. But like, I, that's one where I would be like, oh yeah, you should, if you read the script first, I'm not sure you would even know what to think. Mm-hmm without having seen the movie. But there are a lot of scripts where, yes, reading it first probably would be great. Now, Drew, you've been preparing a lot of the scripts for Weekend Read. And of the scripts you've been going through, which ones of them do you feel like, oh, I can completely see the movie on the page? Are there examples of that you can think of? Mm. I mean, the the horrible truth is I probably read about the first 10 pages to make sure it's formatted formatted properly and then I walk. Um, But definitely in film school, we would read first and then watch. Mm. Um, And that there would sort of be the heartbreak where you would like mm-hmm. fall in love with like a specific moment and then it would just be completely either cut or yeah. you would just visually see it and it, it, it'd be gone. You're like, that was the turning point. That was the whole thing. That was Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the exercise that Greg wants to do, I think it's good no matter which way you get to it is recognizing that the screenplay was what got you to the film, but the film is not the screenplay and that the thing has changed along the way. You can sort of get a sense of what those changes were. Obviously, with the four consideration scripts, as we talked about when this episode, is a lot of times those are cleaned up, perfected versions of things. So they're really reflecting the final, what's on the screen rather than what was the shooting script when it went into production. Yeah, there have been times where I've done a credit arbitration Mm -hmm. as an arbiter. So I had to read lots of the scripts. And then I saw the movie. And I was just bummed in general. Like, I guess, and and the thing is, it's inevitable. Maybe it is because you make your own movie in your head, but that's the movie your brain wants to see. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, then somebody else's movie is the one that you do see. And I think to myself sometimes, like, a movie that I love, what if I had read the script first, made my own movie of it, would I still love the movie the way I do? I I bet not. Mm -hmm. I bet not. I remember uh, reading Natural Born Killers as a script uh, well before the movie was in production and just loving it. And I sort of saw a certain movie and then I got to work on that movie and it was just not at all the movie that was on the page. And I was I had to sort of deal with the, not, not the grief, I, mean, I didn't care that much, but acknowledge that like the thing that I saw in my head was never going to exist. Exactly. So better to have nothing in your head. <laughs> just, actually, Greg, the advice is don't become a screenwriter. Just stop. Just enjoy movies because like reading scripts will break you. Empty your mind. Empty your mind. Make It Australia writes, Recently, my wife asked a colleague what she was doing on the weekend. And the colleague answered, I'm going to see the Wonka biopic. Hilarity and mirth ensued. On reflection, <laughs> though, and in light of your recent discussions about the pronunciation of biopic and the fluidity of language generally, you know, preponing, I wondered, is it possible that the term biopic might reasonably be applied to a film about a fictional character? No. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Yes, I think I think it absolutely can be because I think, but we might say like a fictional biopic. It's basically like it's doing the things that biopics do about centering a character and sort of seeing the journey of their life, but in a fictional context. No. Right. Well, first of all, Wonka is not a biopic. I don't care. Right. 
Um, no biopic is a musical. Let's start with that. Oh, huh. name one. All right. Um, I'm thinking about it. I keep yeah. going. Rocket Man. Oh, is that a musical? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all the singing happens. Oh, no, but that's it, not true. Not presented no. as it's not a like, musical. Yeah, it is because it, it, it starts with him going as a child singing The Bitch's Back. But a musical is where lots of people join in and sing the songs. Yeah, there's definitely like full choreograph oh, numbers. I didn't see it, no. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> All right, well, other than Rocket Man. Other than Rocket Man. I don't think that we should be doing this to our precious language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think a biography is of a living person. Mm. Because at that point, is Star Wars a biopic? Mm. Isn't every movie about someone a biopic? Because it's about them and their life and stuff? Yeah. I, I get that, Craig. And I, I, you make a good point. I would just say that we have a sense of what a biopic does and sort of what the shape of a biopic is. And so it's not hard to imagine a fictional biopic that is doing biopic-y stuff right. deliberately, the tropes of a biopic, and applying it to a fictional That's character. different. Like, So that would be like a mockumentary. Yeah. So a biopic style, mm. but being intentional. By the way, there's like a thousand people who are going to send a thousand, like, here's musical biopics. Well, please, please don't. C Citizen Kane is a fictional biopic. Right, except it's not. It's a movie about a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I mean, all the biopics we've seen after that, there's Citizen Kane about a real person. I guess I, there were probably, I don't know, was there not biopics before Citizen Kane? Is, you think biopics are modeled after Citizen Kane? I mean, so, so much stuff is, I suppose yeah. it's possible, but I think, yeah, it's just the term, it's not a good idea. I, no one wants to see the Luke Skywalker biopic. I don't want to see the Bruce Wayne biopic. There have been so many Bruce Wayne biopics. <laughs> it is the Bruce Wayne biopic. <laughs> yeah, so many. We have a question from Kat who sent in an audio question. My apologies if this particular word has been discussed on the podcast before, but I've been hearing this new word, comfortability, more frequently. It doesn't surprise me that people find their way to this word. If something's durable, it has durability. If someone's able, they have the ability. But those words don't break down into a prefix and suffix in English, unlike comfortable, which expands upon comfort. The context I've heard it in makes comfortability a synonym of familiarity or facility, as in, I have a comfortability with the subject matter. Do you think people seek to use comfortability because they feel comfortable has a different connotation than comfort? You would say, I'm comfortable with the subject matter, but that doesn't mean the same thing as the subject matter gives me comfort. Maybe it's something along those lines. I'm just curious if this word has crossed your paths yet. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my question. Craig's eyes are, are bulging here. He does not, he does not have to like the word. No, it's just a mistake. That's all. It's just a mistake. It's a mistake. It's like adding N-E-S-S -S to something to to nounify it when you didn't know there was already a noun. Mm -hmm. So the, the word you want when you say comfortability is comfort. That's the word you want. It's a perfectly good word. Shorter and faster is better. It's just an unnecessary complication. Sometimes we do have to invent nouns for adjectives. So famously, I can't remember which president it was, Coolidge maybe, or Hoover. Somebody came up with normalcy. It was a president. Mm. So there was no word. Yeah. There was no noun. There's normality, which is different. It is different, yeah. He just invented normalcy. And uh, yeah, it was kind of useful. Yeah. Normalcy is useful, and it became a word. Uh, we don't need comfortability. That's just dumb. So I would agree with Craig that it's probably a mistake. It's probably a frequently made mistake that will, I think, will become 
an accepted word. It, it fits the it fits enough patterns that it's we're going to hear it more and more. And it's like just, on accident, yeah, but rather than by accident, because it, it it fits a pattern. Yeah, and so people will be comfortable using it. Incorrect. And uh, and in general, as we've talked about on, on the show, English tends to want to become more regular, and so we sort of move away from our Germanic words into our Latinate words. It's a natural progression. Yeah. But all the more reason why you don't want to see comfortability. It's it's mm-hmm. defying if, you know, what you're describing is kind of an entropy of language where things are moving towards whatever they call it, absolute zero heat death. But the universe is not designed to spontaneously make things complicated. Even evolution is trying to simplify by addressing problems. Well, I'm arguing that it is actually, it's a way of simplification. Right. Yeah. The yeah. problem is that comfortability isn't actually simplifying anything. Because it's, we already had the word. It's just that people made a mistake. Yeah. They just were adding a whole bunch of, because you could just as easily say comfortabilization. Well, we don't want to do that no. instead of comforting. So it has to stop somewhere. And uh, this is where I draw the line. Yeah, and no further. When I was doing the edits on Arlo Finch, one of the words that came up was kneeled versus knelt. And mm. both are acceptable, but knelt is, is fading away and kneeled is, is rising because it, it just fits the ED pattern more often. I would have definitely gone with knelt. Yeah. But I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I think we've established this. Yeah. Weaved and wove. The answer is wove. But he weaved between the trees versus he wove between the trees. They're actually different. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wove, I would think of more uh, as, fabric. as pa- fabric. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's sort of like the dived yeah. thing or the hanged and hung. That's a, yeah. that's a big one that people struggle with. I think we have one last one, Helena, who's writing about writing during production. Helena writes, my first movie is going into production in a few weeks. It's for Amazon, shooting in the UK. I'm British. And I'm wondering what my role is in terms of the script once the camera starts rolling. You just mentioned in your show that with movies, it's the writer's job to keep on top of the script and be the script coordinator. Do you mean with every change? And how can you do that if you're not on set? Does someone just feed back to you on the phone? I can't be on set because I'm writing the sequel, which is a lovely problem to have, but now I'm concerned about how much day-to-day work I'll have on the first movie while I'm trying to write the second. And I guess I'm just wondering how the mechanics of it all will work. I suppose I can ask my producers, but I'm trying not to look too green, so I thought I'd give it a shot to ask you guys. I hope the producers aren't listening to this because no. then they're going to know. Yeah, so it's, it's well, it's Helena, maybe that's not her real name, but it's an Amazon movie shooting in the right. UK that right already now. has a sequel. So... Yeah. Do you think it's our Helena? Yeah. No. 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 Helena. She would never be intimidated to ask no. these questions. No. Darling, listen, first of all, congratulations. Yes. That's what you should be uh, thinking about. Yeah. Although uh, this is an indication that Helena is a real writer. She's worried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's got a movie. She's not sitting here going, look at me. I'm awesome. Yeah. She's like, oh, God, my stomach. So yeah. that's she's, she's, she's Mega McDonalding here. Yes. Where she's like, things are going fantastically. Like, uh, And she's and I'm in trouble. Yeah. So first of all, practical thing. So most of the time, writers of movies are not on the set. This is why so many movies go so awry. When it comes to the changes, they are usually changes that are happening because they are requested of you by the director or producers. So you won't have to worry about what those are. There will be people to make incidental changes along the way. Generally, those aren't generated in page form um, because you have to, well, it's a little different in the UK. I'm not sure how it goes there. But in the US, if somebody's writing stuff down on a piece of paper, unless it is what we call an A3H exception, which is basically defined as incidental Mm non-writing writing, then somebody has to be hired and paid. Uh, That's part of the union thing. So if it's significant work, they're going to call you and they're going to ask for it. 
And you may also find yourself on call where they may pick up the phone in the middle of the day and say, we have a problem. It's just not really working. Or can you replace this line? Or can you come up with a better idea or something? Or someone's throwing a tantrum. Mm-hmm. And then you just race in like a firefighter, yeah. but from your this, from your seat. So don't panic. They'll let you know. So I was recently going through the Screenprints book and we have a chapter on writing to production and really talk through sort of like what the writer's role is in pre-production and sort of going up and sort of we go through script stages and when you lock pages and we get really detailed about that. So when the book comes out in 2025, you'll be able to read this. That's not going to help you right now, Helena. I think what you need to do is actually uh, ask the producers, hey, when you go into production, how can I help? Like, what do you need from me? Like, how is this going to work? Because what Craig describes is the incidental changes, which is basically like the sign is happening in a grocery store and now it's in a hardware store. You don't need to generate new pages for that. They, they probably won't care about that and you'll be fine. There may actually be a script generator on your movie whose job it is, is to actually put out those pages and such if things do happen. If a scene needs to be rewritten, they're going to hopefully come back to you. They should come back to you and talk about the problem and you're going to generate a new page that goes in there. That's... If you've never done that before, it's intimidating because it's weird and you'll figure it out. Yeah. So there's going to be somebody in the production that's pushing the new pages out through usually synchronize. Mm -hmm. So somebody is covering the technical end of it. It would be good, I think, for you, Helena, to, as John said, reach out to the producers, but also let them know you're on call. Mm -hmm. Even though you're writing the sequel, of course, you're invested in the quality of this movie and you're on call if they should need help you are available. And then you just do it. And as nervous as you might be about doing something for the first time, like production rewriting, there is nobody on earth that is more qualified to do the production rewrite here than you. Yeah. And I know this because they've already hired you to write the sequel, which is a very good sign. It's a good sign. This must be good. Yeah. I wonder what it is. Mm-hmm. Ooh, when it comes out. Mm-hmm. No. no. Uh, 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 uh. It's already sequel in development. Thank you for the questions. Time for our one cool things. My one cool thing is a card game that I started playing this last week called Regicide. Mm. And it is a cooperative card game. So if you're playing with multiple players, uh, you are working together to try to do this thing, basically to, to overthrow this monarchy. And so you have your own hand and you're playing cards out of your own hand in turn to you know, make things happen. Really smartly done. It uses a standard deck of cards, so you don't have to get their fancy deck, but their deck is actually a little bit better for it. There's a solitaire version that you can also get on iOS or, or Android. Just a really smartly designed game. It was a game of the year oh. for two or three years ago. Been recommended on some of the blogs that I read. Um, but a really good game. So it's regicidegame.com if you want to look up the rules. Again, you can play with a standard deck of cards, but the deck they sell you is also really good. So you watch The Crown and then you played Regicide. Indeed. Mm. It's all been royalties for me. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, my one cool thing this week is a bunch of one cool people Mm -hmm. to me. The Creative Arts Emmys were on this past, which just a few days ago, really. I think it was past Sunday. Mm -hmm. And was very happy to see The Last of Us. Our crew did great. They won a combined total of eight Emmy Awards. That's fantastic. And I am so proud of them. If the downside of being the showrunner is that you're like, you've become the strange adoptive father of a thousand people the upside is you get to feel the pride and they have done so well and they worked so hard and so i i just want them all to know what nominees and winners how proud i am of them and happy to report that i think everybody that won will be with us again so congratulations to our hardworking crew they are the best wonderful 
That is our show for this week. Scribbness is produced by Drew Marquardt, edited by Matthew Chalelli. Outro this week is by Sudarshan Kadam. If you have an outro, you can send us a link to ask at johnaugust.com. That's also the place where you can send questions. You can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at johnaugust.com. That's also where you find the transcripts and sign up for our weekly newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. We have t-shirts and hoodies. They're great. You'll find them at Cotton Bureau. You can sign up to become a premium member at scriptnotes.net, where you get all the back episodes and bonus segments like the one we're about to record on knowing when someone's just being nice to you. Oh, that's great, John. I'm really excited for that. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Drew. (laughs) 